at Mom Life presented by Kids Dentistry, welcoming new smiles at Kids Dentistry. With safety as their top priority and easy online scheduling for new patients, Kids Dentistry is where healthy smiles grow. Visit kidsdentistry.com. That's dentistry spelled D-E-N-T-I-S-T-R-E-E. Welcome to That Mom Life. I'm Sarah Jordan, and I'm so excited today because, of course, Throughout the radio industry, we meet so many radio professionals across the entire country, but beyond that, the entire music industry in general. I think that's uh, something that most people don't realize about radio is that we do actually get to talk to some amazing individuals from all sorts of different walks of life in the actual music industry, which is so broad, but also specifically the record label industry. And this is Sherry. Sherry works for Atlantic Records, has been there now for a decade. And actually, you've been in the entire record label industry now for how long it's been almost 20 years I 20 started, years so i started almost 20 years ago which is crazy to think back on now so wait, this is what i love about like again this industry becomes it seems so big but then it becomes so small because you meet people and then whether they move around the country or not like that friendship stands and i remember i met you very early on i was so i want to say young slash little at the time and you came in and you were just this burst of energy so passionate about music and i'm so glad that i have our paths have continued to cross as the years have gone on and that i was even able to bring you on today I was so flattered that you asked me. And honestly, I wasn't sure what it was about. I was like, sure, that sounds great. <laughs> I guess you catch up, sign me up. Let's do it. Um, so no, thank you for thinking of me. And like you said, that's the beautiful thing about social media nowadays. Even if we can't constantly communicate, it's just nice to be able to be a part of someone's life. It is. And even in the last, especially in the last year, I have found that social media as dumb as it seems to say is that it's been a great way to stay connected with people, but also even through the podcast, I'll reach out to somebody I haven't talked to on the phone, or maybe I haven't talked to on the phone, even at close to 10 years. And I'll be like, Hey, you want to do this podcast? They have a similar reaction. You do. They're like, sure. That sounds good. And then like a couple days beforehand, they're like, wait, what is, what, what do you want me to say? And I'm like, it's the story of you. So you know your story best. I just guide you along the way. And again, you were one of those people that I've, I've seen you since you started earlier on in your career. And then since then I've seen you get married and now have a baby and you're still in the industry kicking butt. And I'm like, I got to call Sherry. So Sherry, one of the things about you first off, and when you and I were talking, I was like, oh my gosh, we have to talk about this. Cause eventually we have to go back in reverse and figure out how to got to, how you got to where you are now. You did not have the average upbringing in the sense that you literally moved around the world, not around the country, not around the States. You literally moved around the world, multiple continents. Yeah, no, I, you know what? I'm going to back you up and be honest about something quick. So when you asked me to do this, I just done this Peloton ride. That was the year of yes. And so I sent <laughs> a message and I was in my thought, in my head, I thought, God, you don't even like leaving people voicemails. You hate your voice so much. Like, what do you like? And I was like, nope, year of yes, year of yes. We'll figure it out. <laughs> so that that's the that's the beyond the music truth on that. Immediately, I was like, oh. um, this is not powered by Peloton, but thanks Peloton for bringing me Sherry. <laughs> Uh, by the way, we, we have to talk about a mom trick of how I can get my kids to, to do a fake Peloton next to me to keep things busy. Um, That's amazing. We'll get to there. <laughs> my, um, my upbringing was very unique. My parents left Iran, which is where they're both from, because they got accepted to University of Iowa. So I'm just assuming they were accepting more people from different countries at that school at the time. So my mom got pregnant. She had me in 79. And um, because I was the oldest grandchild, my mom took me to Paris, which was kind of a halfway point between Iran and, um, and U.S. At, 
And uh, while we were there in 1979, there was a lot of pickpocketing and then the Persian revolution was just starting in Iran. So my mom was in a busy elevator and, you know, she must have been early 20s when she had me on the younger side. And she had all of our documents in a Ziploc bag. So somebody, you know, she got pickpocketed, took um, all of our documents and we got stuck in Paris with no documents during the Persian revolution. And then which went into, you know, the hostage situation. And so we got stuck and the U.S. was not going to re, um, replace my documents, even though I was technically born in Iowa. So my father, who was in Iowa at the time, sold everything. Me and my mom were stuck in Paris and we all, all three of us went back to Tehran. So I lived in Tehran from 79 till 92. Um, and that was like, that was my upbringing. My brother, who's four years younger than me, was born there. And we just kind of adjusted to that life. And I had family there, obviously. So it wasn't that difficult that my parents obviously had, you know, had lived most of their life there. So we lived. that was our beginning. So wait a second. So you said your dad was in Iowa and you and your mom were in a different place? Yeah. So I was born in Iowa, but me and my mom were just supposed to go on a quick trip to Paris just so my grandparents can come meet us there and meet the grandbaby for the first time. And on that trip, um, my mom lost, not lost, but got pickpocketed and we lost our documents. So while we were there on vacation, we got stuck in Paris with no documents. And um, the only place that we could go is where my parents are from, which is Iran. So my dad is in Iowa at this point, still finishing school, but he had to cut that short. And uh, me and my mom went back to Iran and my dad came back to Iran to meet us there. Okay. That was, that was where I was trying to figure out. So your dad was able to come back to you guys, but he had to, he had to cut short what he was doing so he could come back with his family. Exactly. So he never got to finish school there, which was really difficult because that's why they had, you know, that's why they had moved there and made such a change in their life. Um, (sighs) And so same thing with my mom. And when we went back to Iran in 79, I mean, that was not a pretty time in Iran that was like in the middle of all this and I'm not great with history of any country, but like my most vivid childhood memories are the first five years of my life, we were getting bombed every day, every other day. And so you're just trying to live as a child. Like I remember the big alarm would come on, uh, the loud alarms, city alarms would come on that there's a bomb being dropped. And my mom would grab me and my brother and we would go into the basement or, or hide behind a counter. So in case if it didn't hit us and it hit somewhere close and there'd be flying glass, we were protected. And that was just how life was. I can't like, I have goosebumps all over my body because I can't even imagine trying to be a child and just live a normal childhood. And that was your normal until you were 13. So that was a, that was the first five years, and because I'm terrible at history, I want to believe the bombing was com- the bombings were coming from Iraq because at the time Iran was going through just transition, so they felt like it was the right time for them to try to take a piece of Iran since they were a neighboring country. So that's where that war was going on, and that was the first five years of my life. Um, I didn't feel like it was. Look, I, I fully remember those years of my life. I remember like my dad was always a little eccentric. So he would, if my mom wasn't around when the alarm went off, so my dad would grab me and my brother and take us to the roof so we could watch the big garbage cans come down. And then we'd get in our car and drive to it to see where it hit. But like when I was my, 
I think as we got older, the more you understood the value of life. And as I got older, like closer to three, four, five, I just remember hiding behind the counter and thinking like, you know, dear God, if you let me make it through today, I will do this. Like, I just remember having wishes every day of things that I would promise I would do if that, that day wasn't our day. So I was very conscious of the fact that this was bad, but at the same time, like it just felt so normal because it had been how our life had been for so long. So has there been any long lasting effects on you, your brother, your mom from going through that, that you think has like caused, even if it's just what you just said, you were like, if I live through this, I'm going to do this. Do you think that as any way, shape or formed help fuel you or make you more protected in certain ways? Or how do you think that's affected you in general? I think, um, you know, I, I make a joke sometimes run where I'm on an airplane, which I used to be on a lot before the last year. Every time there's turbulence, I'm like, this is not how my, I did not survive the Iran war to go down like this. <laughs> this is not how my story was written. I think it just has put a different fighter in me. I think I'll always have that. What was it? I think there was a gas explosion I heard once years ago, and that spooked me in a different way that it would affect other people. But in general, I think I just have a different appreciation for life sometimes. Like I have a different appreciation for life, but I'm also very like alert of things around me. I'm very like at any given moment, doesn't matter if we're driving on the street. I'm always like, if this happens to my right, what am I going to do on my left? If this, like, I'm always like in protection mode. Um, and even I remember when COVID was, I think the last trigger that I had was I live in Seattle and the first case of COVID that felt very national was in Seattle and it was 20 miles away. And as soon as I heard about that concept, I went into this like, I need to protect my family. I need to protect my son. Like it, it, it hits you differently of like, no, 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 I can't like, this is not it. This is not how it's going to happen. And it definitely put me in a hyper alert immediately. Instead of like, I was, I immediately knew something was bigger than, you know, than what was predicted at the time. I feel, I felt so naive at the beginning of COVID, like not realizing I knew like at first, cause my, I had cousins over in Korea and they were telling us about it cause it hit there first. And I was like, oh, this is just something they're dealing with. And I remember they were literally asking us to send them masks at the time because they were running out of them there, even though they're actually more common there due to pollution and other things. And I was, it's felt so, so, so far away and not real in my world. And then as it started hitting, I felt like, I think I was in denial about it for a very long time that, oh, this is what we have to do. And, oh, this isn't just going to be something. I remember the, it's been a year, over a year now that I've been at home for working at home and people were like, oh, we'll see each other again next week, two weeks tops. No way they're going to let this go on past two weeks. And then to realize you're a part of a global pandemic is the only time in my entire life I can say I was a part of something global. And it's so weird to think that when our kids are in school someday in high school doing history lessons about the year of 2020, that they will be little, probably not remembering most of the things they've gone through. Maybe, maybe my kids will remember my son's in first grade. He probably will remember wearing a mask to school and being home for almost an entire year doing virtual learning. It's so weird to think that we're witnessing history so much right now. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And it's, it's weird because for so long I avoided taking so many pictures of my son wearing his mask. And I was like, no, don't forget this. Like you want all those, like, this is our normal life. And I don't want to miss a year of this strange normalcy. One but of my I friends who was actually uh, on my podcast, the very first episode and then my one year episode, 
the entire, up until 2021, as soon as this lockdown started until January 1st, she took one picture every single day of her kids and she posted it. And then she turned it into a book for her kids. And she said that she wanted her kids to be able to look back in what, what, however they write it in history books, she wanted her kids to remember, and they have young, she has young kids like we do. She has three that they were off baking cakes. They were in their driveway riding bikes. They married their stuffed animals and had a whole wedding reception, including a wedding cake. She wanted her kids to be like, because they probably won't remember whatever history writes. She wanted them to have their real version of what happened to them. And I was like, how amazing that you did that. (laughs) I wish I was, I wish I wasn't so survival mode right now, because I do think there's a lot of those things to do to really celebrate this year for what it was. And just like, just let's get weird. (laughs) Let's just surrender to whatever this is. Yeah, exactly. But like right now I'm just like, okay, I just ran a marathon. I'm going to pass out, wake up in in six hours and do it again. Like right now I have no time, but like, but I wish I was celebrating these moments and appreciating them for what they are, because we're always going to look back. And like, I feel like we're living in memories right now. And I wish I was like really engulfed in it. I, I think you just placed that completely right. I feel like I've been on pause and only reminiscing and not realizing like I, I, recently got to send my kids back to school within the last two months. And I'm like looking at them confused about the fact that they're all of a sudden so much taller. And I'm like, Oh wait, you you're almost turning eight and six in my mind. You're still like seven and five. Like I know time is passing, but I don't feel like I've been actively participating in as much as I should have been in like, Oh wait, things actually aren't on pause at all. So it's a very weird thing. Okay. That was a total sidebar into COVID, but you're right. The the survival instinct certainly kicked in for some people for the first time, but for you bringing up old memories. So you said you lived in Iran until 1992. Where did you go after that? So at that point I was 12. And I think I, I know that my parents realized that if we were going to make a change for me to have a better chance at an education was then. So my dad um, applied for different jobs and he got a job offer in Canada. So my dad went to Canada in Ontario and me and my mom and my brother sold things in Iran within a month. And we moved back to Paris because I also have a couple of aunts that live there. And we just got a tiny space in Paris so we can kind of, that was our holding pattern. So me and my mom and my brother stayed in Paris. And because over the years I had gotten my American citizenship, I was able to go to Canada to be with my dad. So I went first. I got on my first flight at like a little over 12 years old across, you know, from Paris to uh, Ontario. And uh, I lived with my dad and my mom and my brother came a few months later. So I, so here I am 12, 13 year olds with my dad that doesn't know what to do with a 12, 13 year old. And uh, we survive each other in a trailer and a lot of uh, a lot of meals made out of eggs. <laughs> um, I definitely had a unibrow and he didn't know what to do and took me to a salon and got me a perm at 13. And that did not help me make new friends. But, <laughs> a perm never helps anyone make no, new friends. <laughs> no, neither does, neither, does buck, neither does buck teeth and a unibrow. But here I am and I think oh I chose a for, profession for a reason. Um, but I, uh, I feel so we, so we definitely spent some time there. I couldn't speak any English. So I learned how to speak English by watching Tony Danza on who's the boss. And, um, so 
now I'm in Canada speaking like I'm, you know, not from there or anywhere else. Um, wait, was Tony Danza Jersey? Was he New York? He was a New Yorker, but like, I don't, it, it was a different accent than there was in Canada. So basically I learned everything I, I could from Samantha, Mona, Angela, and, uh, and I spoke just off. So I did not have friends for a lot of years. And at some point my mother and my brother came and uh, our tour of Canada continued to West Coast Canada. So I was then outside of Vancouver, Canada, um, did school there, not so well. Just there's just a lot of anxiety of learning a language and then trying to learn basic things about that you learn in school. And so when I turned 19, turned 19, my dad sent me on a one way trip to Michigan because his sister, uh, my aunt lived in Michigan that I've never spent a lot of time with. And uh, so I went there for a summer thinking it was just a summer. And uh, he, at the end of the summer said, no, I feel like you were too dependent on your friends here, which clearly he didn't know me well, cause I didn't have any friends. Um, and he wanted me to have kind of a fresh start. So I just got a lot of different jobs in Michigan to try to just make enough money so I can be back in Vancouver, back with my old life again. And truthfully, that moment changed my life because my aunt has become, you know, an incredibly strong person in my life. And I was meant to be exactly where I was. And that jobs for my random jobs of working at a nursery to third shift cashier at my grocery store to a banking drive through um, drive through tell, uh, banking teller to just, I can't remember all the jobs I had, but I was working three jobs at a time. They all led, eventually I ended up working at a music venue in, in uh, Michigan and that kind of got my foot in the door. Okay. <laughs> How many languages do you speak now? I speak English <laughs> sometimes. I just, honestly, I'm just, I, I speak Farsi well but not like emotionally well i can i can survive a situation but not as expressive i speak english fine i definitely have a difficult time remembering words now that i'm on lack of sleep and a mother um but you know i know a tiny bit of french because we had to learn it in canada that's, that's actually what i was going to ask is if you knew french from well your time in paris multiple times but then also in canada obviously that's huge. So that's why I was figuring you probably at least could knew bits and pieces of at least three languages. <laughs> I know just enough to like, honestly, I don't know that much. It's funny because we go, me and my, me and my husband went to Paris years ago and uh, I did my bonjour and they responded back. I was like, no, no, that's all I know. Don't, <laughs> don't be taken by my amazing pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, I don't. And it was really difficult because when here I am in Canada trying to learn how to speak English and to be able to go to university, you have to know French, a couple of years of French. And I didn't like, I couldn't learn it. So it was a really hard transition for me of trying to take that much information in, in such a you know short amount of time. So that move to Michigan, that was when you were in the college age, did you say? It was yeah, exactly, exactly. And that was the hardest transition. Was that the hardest transition for you? I know you mentioned it being the biggest turning point for you, but do you think it was harder to move like from Iran to Canada or when you were moved from Canada to Michigan and like with a one-way ticket, you got to figure this out. I don't know if anything, I think I, I think 
I just had become so adaptable that it was just more my stubbornness. Like when they said, when my dad said, Hey, we're sending you to Michigan. I was like, cool. All right. Like it just, I was so used to shifting and moving. When I found out that I was stuck there, I think it was almost just like the control aspect of what do you mean? You're not bringing me back. Then it was the transition of it. I, I think every transition was hard. I think being a new person is hard. I think being a teenage girl is hard trying to fit in with other girls. I think not looking like everybody else of like, again, my ethnicity definitely wasn't subtle. Um, I think, I think all of that was difficult, but I think I was always like bred to adapt and it wasn't a city. It was just feeling alone because you didn't have like the friendship group that most people have that at that age group. When you were moving around to Canada and then again, definitely to Michigan in the heart of the Midwest, did you ever, ever feel like you were discriminated against because of your ethnicity? I don't know if I was discriminated against necessarily because here's the thing. I, I say that I don't look like everybody else because I have dark hair, but I'm pretty albino colored for my, you know, for my ethnicity. So I don't know if p- people picked up like, I think as soon as I said Iran, it felt threatening to some people. And where I've always lived has been like smaller cities within states, states and provinces. So I don't know if like they'd been exposed to so much of that. I feel like the easy answer is my my brother's name is Mohammed Reza. I think he got hit harder than I did. I think I got hit harder with the concept of being a girl and girls are catty and girls like not all girls are catty, but that age group is hard to fit in in the first place. And For I had sure. a time trying to fit in and find a group because groups were already made. So that was like the hardest part of it. And it's and like nowadays you look back and you know, we're all on Facebook and all those high school friends that were not very kind to me want to be friends. And you just want to go, do you not remember? Do you, like, do you not remember how mean you were to, to little Sherry? <laughs> um, you know, and they all, they're all moms now, which is, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, that they're better moms than they were when they're, they were that age group themselves. Like as far as like preaching inclusivity. I mean, I do think you're, certainly right that a teenage girls and just well prepubescent puberty right past it is a very rough spot for girls and that's when that cattiness comes out and getting out of it unscathed is miraculous if that does happen to you so i do agree that that's definitely something that affects women in that regard and sure i hope they grow out of that and that's just a weird phase even though it is weird all of a sudden when you're like wait we're friends on socials now and you like chitter chatter at me that's weird um so where was your, did, was your brother in Canada? Did your brother stay in Canada when you went to Michigan? I know he was four years younger than you. So did he end up also getting sent to Michigan? <laughs> yeah, he came, he came to Michigan that summer. And then um, he, they sent him a ticket back a couple months later and they did not send me a ticket back. So he went back to being with my parents that I honestly think, again, I think it shaped him differently because he ended up then staying with them till he was 30. Like he ended up in um, Canada. Yeah, with with my parents. So I think that like, I think in a way he wished he had that kind of space that I did. Um, But I think it kind of that's when our routes kind of split a little bit differently. And I got to gain a little more independence, and just kind of start my life a little faster. So tell me, you said you started working at a Michigan music venue. And that's really what got your foot in the door. So when did music take over your life? So growing up in Iran, I didn't, I wasn't exposed to music because most music was illegal. 
So I never was like in the household that was music focused in any sort of way or just exposed to it. So I, um, I think that music became something that allowed me to have friends and find bonds when I moved to Michigan. And so one of the places that people were hanging out at was a music venue in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So I became, so I applied for a job there and I became a cocktail waitress. And so I was working there doing fine. And I started to kind of, you start making, started making friends, started like the, you know, it came with its own, um, I don't know. It was just, it was just good people. I felt like it was just a lot of people that were left out coming together to have their own little, little corner in the world. And it kind of, it started some good bonds for me there. And then there was a competitor that opened up a restaurant that they were trying to turn into a bar across the street, not across the street, but across town. So I applied there, told them that I was a bartender at the other place. So they'd hire me as a bartender and it was just a place that was basically it was a gay bar and now it was trying to be a music bar and it, it didn't translate at the time in, in Grand Rapids. And so the owner was booking shows and there was not a lot of people showing up that were drinking. So it was affecting how much money I was making. And so one day I told him, I think I was 20, maybe at the time I told him, I, was, I would just kind of got mouthy about how he should, he's not booking the right thing. So he let me start booking and through that booking, I just started advertising with local radio stations. So on a Thursday night, it was the top 40 night. On a Friday night, it was the rock night. Um, so each night was like I would collect door on it and then I would work with radio station, radio stations and just make friends and just get to know them. If it was program directors or promotion people or if it was a night host that was, you know, on the rock night was hosting the wet t-shirt contest <laughs> who became my long life, you know, the, who became the true love of my life, my best friend that I met one night hosting a wet t-shirt contest because she was working at the rock station. Um, so it's just every person that I came across at that phase of my life just became what I didn't have growing up in Canada. And it just almost brought me into this special crew of people. And so through that, because as, and I know, you know, this from experience, because I was working with stations where there was opportunities, where there was labels who had artists coming through for promo, their stations would partner with us and have the artists come perform at our venue. So through that, I started meeting label reps and I met a rep. Her name was Michelle Terrell and she was just just so warm and open. And I appreciate it now more than I ever did at the time, because I understand when you're busy, how hard it is to pause for someone that just, you know, asking you questions and be present with them. But she did that for me. And um, I told her I wanted to be like her when I grew up. And she told me I needed to start from the bottom and start as a college rep. So that night I went home and um, I found out that Sony was hiring college reps in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So I faxed in my resume at three o'clock in the morning from Meyer's grocery store. And I got <laughs> a couple days later and uh, I don't want to fast forward that fast forward it that hard, but obviously the company that I work for is not where I started, but this many years later, um, the person that got that fax is now one of our heads of marketing at Atlantic that I get to work with every day. And it is just the coolest thing in the whole entire world to just ha just to have someone that started your life, started your career, um, still be in your daily life. Oh my gosh. See, that's the stories I love about when you find an industry 
And you, like she said, you got to start from the bottom, but then now I'm sure that person wasn't necessarily in the job that they are in currently. And then to both like grow up together, be in the industry as it grows, it changes, shrinks, divides, whatever it does. Cause I know that, I mean, that, that industry has changed a lot over the years and that is an amazing story. It's something that like is I'm sure probably a favorite amongst you and your coworkers. The fact that it started with a fax, first of all, a fax um, <laughs> to a resume and that you're still working together. I just, I love and adore that so much. Um, you said you had fallen in love with like the, well, the music scene, of course, but music was a way to connect with people. Do you remember like one of your first favorite bands that was your thing or what was like the it thing at the time? I, when I started as a college rep for Sony, I was, um, there was a band that Epic had just signed and they were, they were called Chevelle and they were from Chicago. So it was really, it was just really special because they had just kind of started and I had just started. So they would come through Grand Rapids, they would go through Detroit. And um, that was my first, that was my first like real connection to someone. And we're still like, I've been to most of their weddings. They are still like, if I'm doing a silly race, they're the first people to donate. Like they're just like, they've supported me through the last 18, 20 years of my life. And I've, I try to do the same thing back, but that was really special. Cause I remember at moments where they hadn't, they were still living out of a van and couldn't afford a hotel. I still had a side job working at the Hampton Inn overnight shift. So I would give them my friends and family discounts so they could go and shower before a show. Oh, that like that will always have like a brotherly moment for me of just like people that I felt connected to and just really rooted for from for each other from early on. Now you mentioned radio promo and um, I think what most people know about artists is that they probably hear them on the radio and then sometimes they become the next Bruno Mars whoever, but sometimes it's a one hit wonder, but in your line of work, when you start with an artist that's brand new, how does that process work? Obviously I know this, but like you mentioned radio promo, and that's actually a big part of it is just simply exposing them to radio stations across the country. But how does an artist go from zero to Ed Sheeran, zero to Bruno Mars, et cetera? Um, I think every artist has a different route. But for us on the most, you know, on the simplest route of it, we start, you know, we, we start in a minivan together, city to city and hope <laughs> to put it in front of, you know, put them in, in a conference room in front of the right people that fall in love the way we've fallen in love with them. And we hope that we inspire them to want to support that artist in whatever form that is. And then we hope from there it continues to just bloom and grow and be exposed to more people that fall in love with them. And we just you know, grow from there, one person at a time, one person telling their friends, but it always starts in a minivan. The best ones always start in the minivan. Otherwise, if it's something that's just so massive, that just happens, and then we're trying to catch up to it, trying to think when the last time that happened for us. But like, a lot of it is just a lot of blood, sweat and tears of just now a lot more digitally, right? Like a lot of course, stuff, a lot of like, what interviews can we do? How much can we be on Zoom with winners? How like it's just connecting with one person at, a, at one person at a time because there's so many distractions. There's so much music out there, and how are you different? And how do you how are you connected differently to those to the fans? 
So what are your favorite, do you have any artists that are your favorite minivan moments as you call them? People obviously like also Chevelle, um, that you can remember those specific moments of you were taking them everywhere and now they're here. I have, um, I do, but it's so weird because my memory, and I guess maybe sitting it out, not sitting out, but like being home the last year and not being able to be with the artists in person, it makes me realize how much I took those fast moments for granted. Like it was just normal at the time and now not having it is a little more difficult, but yeah, but sorry. And I'm going to full circle on this and say like, yes, I've had really wonderful moments from like my favorite, like Ed was a beautiful one, like driving him in a minivan while, while he was doing Legos in the back seat, which felt really silly and unsafe and just not normal, not, not bad normal, but like just that it was wiggling all over the place um, to Florida in the back of a long drive. And he just wanted to go get donuts somewhere. And I promised him if he waited three hours, we'll get to the right place for it. And he would like him and his team who were so wonderful and just, just so they were just kind people, all of them. They were, they would be singing earth, wind and fire while we're driving at nine o'clock at night down a bit, you know, down a highway, try to get to the next destination to, you know, it's, I I'm trying to think like there's, there's so many, there's so many beautiful moments that are just simple moments that you never forget. But the funny thing is the things that are the most vivid in my mind now is the kindness that our artists have shown to my son. Oh, that sticks with me. Like that's a different kind of trigger, right? Like that, like that, I feel like my heart holds that tighter than any like drunk story that I could have with anyone else from my twenties. <laughs> like, like I remember um, f- four or five months ago, I was in a, on a zoom interview with Ava Max and I got a phone call from my son's school. And you know, when you get a phone call from, from a kid's school, you hundred percent. Yeah. So I look at Ava and say, Hey, this is who you're about to talk to. You're on your own. I got to get this. And she's like, okay, got it. I pick up that phone and I found out that he had an accident. They were at the playground. A swing came back and hit him and knocked out his front teeth. And this is the first time, like that was the first time, like I had an emergency with my son. So I came back on zoom a lot calmer than I thought it was going to be. And I said, Hey, I got to go. And he was, she was like, are you kidding? Hang up. Why are you even telling me go? And I left and she texted me later and goes, Hey, I want to send Wyatt something little to cheer him up. Oh, um, I said, okay, cool. Whatever. Here's, here's the address. Didn't think twice about it. And a month goes by and I get not even a month, actually a week goes by and I go to open a door and I can't leave. Cause this massive thing is like boxes outside of our house. And it's like a full Jeep. Like it's like a it's like battery operated Jeep. And I can't, like, we couldn't even get it inside the house. We had to like break it down, bring it in, break it back. It was insane. Like, so Ava Max has no concept of something little. And I was just blown away by the, just the silent generosity of it, you know, like anyway, so that really touched me and she's just been so just lovely and beautiful. And, um, and just other little things. I I can't, I don't force music on my son, but he's been an unbelievable, like he has a vinyl collection and he knows more <laughs> about Aretha Franklin. And like, he knows more about history of music than I think I do on most days. And he fell in love with Vance Joy. And one day we were sitting at the dinner table and he's singing a song and like, 
for the life of me, I can't figure out what song he's singing because I, I, I'm like, at this point, so I go put the lyrics in and I realize it's a Vance Joy track. And he listens to this live album from Vance Joy. And when Vance Joy introduced, he'll, Vance Joy will say, how are you guys doing tonight? Because it's a live from um, Red Rocks. Oh, yeah. He, um, <laughs> so he, and Wyatt responds back, I'm doing great, Vance Joy. Thanks for asking. And then he produces guitar player and Wyatt like says like, hello, so-and-so like, it's really the sweetest thing in the whole entire world. So anyway, we're sitting at dinner table. He's singing a song that I don't know. And so I video him and I send it to um, Vance Joy's name is James, his, James's manager, who, who are just really kind, wonderful people. Um, and I wake up the next morning and it's a video of James Vance Joy finishing their song that Wyatt started stop it i was i just i couldn't like it's one thing to show kindness to me but like to take that time like i'm i'm so emotional about it like it is just so unbelievable to see someone be kind to 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 this little person that means everything to you so our artists have taken a different sort of role in my life now of like i have artists that have kids that like i connect with them and they connect with me on those things and artists that are just so wonderful to wyatt and it's just that's that's my true stories now of like that kind of you know heart that it's a different level of um genuine yeah i want to say genuineness but i don't know if that's the right word but that's what i'm trying to express like they're so much more genuine on a deeper level when they treat a little kid and not just that go out of their way it's not like he was with you and you were with them and they were like nice to your son they legitimately went out of their way to do something way above and beyond i will say you mentioned ed sheeran in the back of your car singing lego lego house um when anyone asks me who's the nicest celebrity I've ever met, Ed Sheeran is always the very first one I bring up. And he came to, did our radio promo tour here in Louisville and he was wearing a little hoodie and I was pregnant with my second. And he said he had a, like a, I don't know if it was a ukulele or at a full guitar. I feel like it was a smaller than a normal guitar. And he was singing like no diggity at the same time. He was also singing like a team and Lego house and stuff like that. Well, then fast forward like four years later when he's much bigger and one of your other fellow Atlantic coworkers, um, he took me um, to, I just had a really, really, really bad moment at work and he gave me front row tickets so I could experience my favorite artist because that is my favorite. And um, when I went backstage to meet Ed and interview him, he looked at me and again, it had been four years and he was like, weren't you expecting the last time I saw you? And I was just like, how in the world? <laughs> it's like, you're co- like, I don't think my own coworkers would have remembered that. And he remembered that. And then because of that is why I say to people, he's one of the most genuine people. Um, and then real quick, cause you mentioned Flo Rida, he came by the radio station and I don't remember how many years ago this was when he was still going around to different radio stations. He came back to back a couple of times in the same year and he was so tall gave the best hugs and his whole crew that you mentioned, they were hilarious and so nice, smelled delightful. And they jokingly told me to come join them on the tour bus and just come on out and leave the city. And I, he's also one of those people that like, when, (laughs) when I, my picture of him is him hugging me and I look very tiny because I tell people, I'm like, he's huge. (laughs) Like he is a, big dude. And I'm, I'm not a tiny person. I'm five, six. Um, 
So anyway, just some of my favorites from your artists. And actually, I want to say someone who possibly used to work with you. I remember when I was pregnant with my first, I got a box in the mail from him and it was like a little monkey towel and like little monkey washcloth and this like whole little set. And I still have that towel. And every time, cause I bring it out, I'm like, you talk about that generosity towards your kids. It does cut much deeper when you're in a moment like that. Um, not that I have to literally comment on everything you just said, but, um, kid disasters when you're in the middle of a zoom call, I recently experienced that because my littlest who's 16 months old, she tripped and fell and I hear my mommy screaming my name and I'm in the middle of a call with my whole staff and she, we had to go get stitches for her. So I'm like in the middle of a zoom call, like my daughter's bleeding. I have to go to the hospital. Okay. Bye. I can't do my work for the day. Figure it out. And I just run. <laughs> and that that's, is, you gotta do. It's, there's, no, there's nothing that like, there's nothing that's like more clear at that moment. No, that, like, no doesn't nothing. matter. It, no. nothing matters whatsoever. And I'm like on the way to the hospital trying to like text my boss, like, I'm sorry. And he's like, why are you bothering me? Go away, go deal with your kid. And I'm like, you're right. Um, and it's, it's just, it's, we try to juggle so much, but there are moments like that where it's like, without a question, you don't need me. Nothing is that important. Goodbye. Um, we keep yeah. mentioning your son, but we have yet to get to, when did you meet your husband? Is he in the music industry? Um, he is. So I met him. Um, I moved. To, I took this job to move West Coast. I moved to San Francisco in early December. It was right after Thanksgiving. And I came to Seattle, which was a part of my region. And I still I sent an email to my husband, who was running a station in Seattle, and um, and his counterparts at the station saying, hey, I'm your new rep. I'm Sherry. Look forward to meeting you. Ten years later, he still has not responded to that email. Um, so <laughs> I did not technically meet him through work because he was not um, I, I'm not going to curse, but he was not um, he was not the best at communication. And uh, but now I appreciate it because I realized that like he saves his communication for his very small circle of people. And that's his family. But um, so I came to Seattle on a work trip. He um, he just seemed just not into like I didn't I was going to have a meeting with him, but I saw him walk out, didn't care. The one thing that he's really brilliant at is that he's always um, allowed the people that work with him to do their jobs. So he was never like the program director that was like, I'm the only one that makes a decision. So it didn't have to be him for me to do business. So I, so I'm, I technically saw him walk by me in the office, but didn't interact with him. A few weeks later, I came back with one of my bosses to have dinner with him and his crew. And it just like, he he got there late he just seemed off and I did not realize that the dog that was about to become our dog months later was having like serious issues and he was in the vet after surgery and that's why he was late so we sat at the table but I didn't sit next to him because I was like Ugh, he doesn't want to be spoken to I'm just going to be on this side talking to the people that I know and like and then um, about a month later I was back in town with for an event with Shinedown was for his station and I saw him at the bar he's not he, you would never um you would never expect us to be together so because he's so incredibly we're so incredibly different um like I am just whimsical and he's OCD <laughs> like it is it is uh it was never meant to we were never meant to be in the same room and uh anyway I met him at that event we spoke for a few minutes 
he invited me to come hang out with him and his staff after the event was over. So I did, but it still was not like a romantic moment for me. It was like, oh, he seems he seems great. I'm glad that we're connecting. Um, and then that month, a few days later, I went home and I sent an email to him and the other people involved in the event. And I said, hey, thanks for uh, thanks for a great event. And he responded back something clever. And I responded back something clever. And that email just got longer and longer. And he was very open about his, I, it wasn't like, it's, it didn't feel like TMI. It just was casual. He would talk about how his dog was about to go into surgery that week. And we would talk about that and, and our families. And I really, I truly fell in love with them over email. And a month later, I was coming to, a month later, I was coming to town for work. So I, I felt ballsy at the time. So I sent him a text and I said, I feel like there's something going on here and I don't want to see you in the work atmosphere. Cause I, I can't unsee that. So we agreed to meet at happy hour to see what it what, what this was. And um, and that was it. He we sat at happy hour together and we uh that I feel like we sat there and talked for 30 minutes and then we gross made out in front of strangers that were having dinner around us and that was <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, and I and then ironically, I think seven years later, we sat in the exact same seats when I told them I was pregnant. So we uh, it all goes back to the Virginia Inn bar in Seattle. <laughs> so wait, you called him when and said you were you were pregnant? No, he, I um, the night that I found the day I found out I was pregnant, he had a work thing um, that day. I don't know how I didn't call him and freak out and tell him. Um, that I was pregnant, but I, um, I went and picked him up as, at his work event and I took him to the bar where we first kissed. Oh, okay. And he ordered a drink and I got water and I told him, and then he stared at me for 20 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, is that good? <laughs> is that bad? Um, I think he was just in shock because we were absolutely trying to get pregnant, but, um, I just, you never know if it's going to happen for you or not. And, um, he was just surprised that it happened so quickly for us. So from Iowa to Iran to multiple parts of Canada to Michigan to DC, Seattle became your home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm never moving. Um, just, and this is not being dramatic. I, um, I'm madly in love with this city um, because it gives me everything I could have ever dreamt of. And when I took, when I did the move here, um, I, I, you know, as you know, for me to work in this business, if anything happens, I have to move somewhere for the next job and for sure. same thing for my husband. And so when I moved here, I said to him, um, Hey, just so we're clear, like, this is it. Like, there's no, you going to another market, me going to another, like, this is it. Like we got to get a job at whole foods to make it work. That's what we do. Um, and we agreed on that. And here we are still lucky enough to do it. But it's a quality of life. I love that we have mountains, we have a city. And also, the other big thing about Seattle to me is that my parents over time moved to Portland, Oregon. Oh, um, it was like I wanted to be and it was a perfect two and a half hour distance for me, especially initially, um, because it was like close enough to visit, but not far enough that they were just in the neighborhood. So I was really grateful of what you know, that connection to them too, to finally, after all these years, to be able to have that. Um, I, what a but, wonderful way, again, after being moved around the literal world with your family, for you all to end up in the little Northeastern part of the country. 
and to find that home. And I will say if for, again, for people who don't know the, the radio industry or the music industry is that like, typically if your job is like cut from there, the only option is typically to move and it could be anywhere. So to set roots and really put those anchors down. I mean, that's what I tell people a lot too. It's like, I'm, I'm home and I know I'm home. (laughs) And, um, we actually have a, a multi-generational house. So my parents are here and I know that's like not a normal living situation, but it works for us. And throughout the pandemic, it has been such a blessing to kind of function as two units in one. And especially as I'm working from home with multiple kids in virtual school and me juggling, like managing with no staff and doing everything I need to do and nursing a baby, putting her down for a nap while hosting a meeting. I mean, it has just been wild and I couldn't imagine living any other way. So I totally understand just that this is where I need to be. And I think especially once you have kids, like the proximity to parents and family means a great deal. No, I totally agree with you. Um, I, uh, I, so since then, a very short version of it is that my mom just moved here 10 minutes away from me a week ago. So <gasps> I am fully for like, if I could have my mom move down, she didn't want to, she didn't want to move into our house. She, but you know, so she's close enough now, but I would a hundred percent, I understand why people are living in cul-de-sacs with, with their brothers and sisters and family. I understand why my mom was at my grandma's house all the time growing up. So um, I would accept and take that. I just hadn't had the opportunity and now I do. And I'm really grateful for, for that break and for that connection of them building that bond a lot easier now. Okay. Really random question. So I would assume that you and you, you can't cover your husband's market. <laughs> um, it's so I do. So he did get, he got it. Ironically, he, he just got a promotion a couple of weeks ago. So he doesn't deal with that station anymore. Um, and it's, re, it was, you know, after 19 years of programming a station, um, it wasn't easy, but it was the right, it was the right move for him. Um, but even at that, he honestly would have always told you his partner in crime, his work husband was Ryan, who he would always say, why do you want to, why why do you want, why do you want to know what a 60 year old man thinks about your song? <laughs> like if I like it, it's a problem. So I never worked him on music. I always worked Ryan who really programmed it musically in the first place. So we never had to have those conversations. Um, and my husband's listen, my husband listens to jazz. Like he's just was never like the active rock guy, which is what format it is. But I did get incredibly lucky because for the format that he's in, at least I wasn't in a position where there was politics, where someone else felt like, because he's my husband, I was going to, you know, show any sort of favoritism, because he had no direct competitor that would put me in that situation, like his direct competitor would be the alternative, right? And alternative was in the same building as him. And, but honestly, to your, it could have gone the other way around. And it's also was really, I think, in a way, it was difficult for me, because I never wanted to be his plus one. I felt like I had earned it all these years to be my person, like to be my own person and have my own credibility and my own relationships. So at first I was like very sensitive to telling people, but at the same time, I never hit it because I felt like it was their right to choose if they wanted to work with me or not, but I never ended up in a weird position. So that is, that is the luck on that. And, you know, and honestly, the other thing of it is, this is when it makes me sound defensive. I think because he does what he does, um, it makes me cross my T's and dot my I's even harder 
because I want to make sure I'm doing all the right things because it's never in question because I would never want to be in that position to answer that, you know? So does, does your son realize that his mom and dad are in, well, he wouldn't know that you guys don't necessarily have like the average type of job in the sense that you both are involved in music, entertainment, live performance. Like does, does he grasp that at all? He does. I took him to one, I took him to see Fitz and the Tantrum. Ooh, fun. And by the way, another group that's just been so welcoming and great to him, but I, um, he understands it. He understands dad, dad does on the radio. He was on the air a few times for just like special things. And my son heard him and he was like really confused by what that, why dad, you know, why dad's voice was coming through the speakers. He understands it, but I think he's still, it's his normalcy, right? It's his normalcy that when he's having breakfast in the morning, there's an artist on my computer in the middle of an interview. Um, How old is your son? He's three and a half. It's funny how much they even pick out because my kids, for as long as they can remember, I've, well, I've been in radio now, this is year 15, strangely, and they would come to the station. And now that I've been working from home, I mean, they hear me record my shows almost every day. They did until they went back in school. They a hundred percent heard me every single day, but since they could talk, they would try to emulate like the station call letters that I would say. And they could, I have them back to as little as two being able to like mimic the station's call signs. And it's just so funny. Cause they don't know. I don't think they, they do know that if they, um, if we're inside the car or in a store, they'll, they'll recognize that's mommy's voice. I don't think they fully grasp it yet because they're only six and five, well, seven and five, almost eight and six. And so they're starting to get there, but it is funny because it's just like, they know that's just not, that's just mommy's job to them. They don't really know the other facets of You're like, right. I don't think, I don't think they, I don't think it's special to Wyatt because he thinks that everybody's parents does something similar to that. Yeah. I don't think my kids realize that my job is necessarily strange, especially not doing it from home. They just think mommy's talking to herself in her office with a microphone and a laptop. So it's been a really funny transition with them. Um, and I know speaking of kids, I can hear one of mine waking up right now (laughs) when you and I are on opposite coasts right now, but Sherry, I just wanted to say, like, I knew that I wanted to talk to you and I'm so glad your Peloton told me or told you to say yes to me, I had no idea what story I was starting with you, but your story, I can honestly say one is one of my favorites now after hearing it. And I'm so glad you decided to say yes. And I'm so glad that our paths have continued to cross through this industry. And (laughs) I am slightly biased towards the fact that I I was just talking about my two-year-old daughter speaking of when she was two, her first album she loved was Ed Sheeran's Divide. And she could recognize his voice in any store that we were in. She'd be like, that's it. She win. Um, so it's hilarious. Like <laughs> he was a, like a little part of even then that was their first favorite album. Um, there's a song called don't call me baby. Anyway, that song, my kids called it the baby song and they used to make me play it on repeat. <laughs> Um, anyway, Sherry, you're seriously, your life story is so wonderful. And, um, I'm so thankful for you today. I am so grateful you asked me. And now I want to do phase two and phase three. You know that. I feel like this was just the beginning. So thank you for inviting me to do this. It really was special to me.
I do repeat guests. And I think here in about six months, I would love to see where the world is and to revisit into phase two, because I feel like we will also be in a brand new phase ourselves as well. So mark that down on your calendar for the future somewhere. We're going to do this again. It's the year of yes. So yes. (laughs) 